Welcome to Before It Breaks, a home maintenance repair podcast where we provide expert advice and tips on how to keep your home in top shape. From fixing leaky faucets to patching drywall and everything in between, our knowledgeable hosts will guide you through the process of DIY home repairs. We'll also cover preventative maintenance to help you avoid costly repairs down the road. So whether you're a seasoned DIYer or a novice homeowner, join us for practical advice and solutions to keep your home running smoothly. Hello, folks. We have another show uh, before breaks where we talk everything home. Um, today, we are blessed with Gabriella. Gabriella, how are you today? I'm good. I'm doing well. How are you? We're doing wonderful over here. We're sun's starting to shine. It's getting getting springtime, and things are great. Um, so, tell us uh, today. We're mainly talking interior design, but this uh, this lady here has a plethora of good things to say and and has a huge background um give us a little bit about your background on interior design to let our listeners know kind of what you offer and and how you got started and all that good stuff yes so i am an interior designer and project manager i've been in the industry for construction both from a design and a building aspect for over 12 years um i've built everything from homes to restaurants to hospitals to coffee shops you name it, I've probably dappled in it at some point or other, (laughs) both from a design and functional aesthetic aspect, as well as all of the more feasibility and back-end processes that need to go into a project to make sure that it's successful. So what inspired you to become what you are? Uh, Or did you just kind of fall into it and just ran with it? I was always more like creatively inclined as a child. I was that annoying one that would decide on a whim to take everything out of her room and then put it in a different way just because that's what I felt like doing as a child (laughs) or changing my outfit like 15 times a day which my mom hated so I've always been more of that outside kind of out of the box creative thinking and looking at different ways that things could be made better or made to work more functionally and I knew pretty much at a young age around 14 16 that I that's what I wanted to do I didn't 100% know what it was but then I ended up getting into interior design. And as I graduated, I my first job was actually at a restaurant company. And they did both design and construction in-house. So it was my first taste at that construction management and project management portion. And all of a sudden, there was this light bulb that went off. And it was like this analytical side of you that you have where you're very detail-orientated. And you look at things from all these different aspects which is non-standard to most interior designers, it like clicked into place. And it was like, this is the missing piece that I've always felt I was kind of off with. And then it all kind of just came together. Well, and that it did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we're spe- here we're speaking everything home, homeowners mainly, um, not so much commercial, but the residential side. Um, walk us through design process. Let's say you're meeting with a client, they've got an idea that's that's basically just an idea they don't have too much but maybe a couple pictures they found on the internet and you know they got blue tape on the wall where they want things let's walk through some of the design process and from you know initial to final on what what from a homeowner's perspective they should be thinking about doing they shouldn't do that kind of thing so the very first thing that I'm going to do and that any good designer is going to do, and I really encourage anyone that is taking on a project themselves to dive into, 
is to really get into the nuts and bolts of your project. Put the aesthetics, put the vision boards aside for a moment and think about what it is that that project needs to do. What is the purpose of that project? Why is it bothering you? What needs to get accomplished? What are the goals? Ask yourself a series of questions in terms of what's working, what's not working, what needs to be put into the place to make it more functional, to make it work for how it is that your family and your needs have evolved, have changed. What makes your eye twitch every single time you walk into that room? And really dive into it because when we only focus at the very beginning on the design portion, we lose the aspect of understanding the why behind the project. So any interior designer is going to start asking you a bunch of questions in terms of basically the ones I laid out of where it is that you want to go, what's bothering you, why isn't it working, how do you need the space to work for you now? And they're going to use that information to be able to infill things, gaps that you're not necessarily speaking towards about how that room or that space needs to function more optimally. And then they're going to layer in the aesthetics. And those aesthetic choices are then based on the why that has been determined. All right. That kind of makes sense. I mean, in a, in a nutshell, you're, you have to have a strong foundation to hold mm-hmm. up all the pretty. Um, well, and it's more so in the fact that that then filters in and starts to become that list of work and starts to define your priorities. Because we start to lose ourselves in projects often, especially when all we're looking at is images and we get scatterbrained and we are like, oh, I like this now. And oh, I like that now. And I want to add this into my space and all these things. And if we don't know where we're going, how do we know if it's going to work? So that creating that list really helps us understand what we're trying to achieve, why we're trying to achieve it. And then you break it down into your priorities of what needs to be accomplished in that project goal for it to be a success what would be really, really lovely to have and, you know, as a secondary tier. And what's that third element that if it doesn't end up happening, you can put it aside for a portion and revisit it later on when budgets or timing are more able to be fit into your project. And I suppose that goes for uh, large projects all the way down to just painting a room. Um, Mm -hmm. Just painting painting has this way of like, Right, but just painting, just painting a small, yeah, just painting a small room, and that's it. I suppose there's a lot of the steps that can be bypassed, but you still need to keep them in mind. I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then, like painting for me, at least, has always been this snowball effect, where it's like, oh, I'm just going to do this paint. I'm just going to upgrade it with paint, and then you start looking at all these other things. And if you haven't really figured out why you wanted to paint or what it was that you were trying to do it's easy to snowball that project where you're buying all these things, you're doing all this extra work because you're just, everything needs to now be new or needs to look like it belongs where maybe that wasn't necessary if we had figured out what we wanted to do first before diving into the painting first. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, How about some common mistakes? Um, I'm assuming the shiny object syndrome. (laughs) is a big one. Um, I see in the handyman world and the construction world, I see it mm-hmm. a lot. What about in the design field? Do you see people chasing that shiny object a lot and bouncing around? Oh, definitely. Yes. That's probably one of the biggest design mistakes. It's a twofold. One, it's it's chasing those vision boards and thinking that if we create this image package and that is enough to give to yourself or to another general contractor and say, build me this bathroom, for instance. That's number one mistake. We think that information of just image gathering 
is sufficient to give the idea and get costing on a project. It's not. You need a lot more information to support those images to get accurate pricing and for anybody really to be able to do your project. The second portion of that is trends. And there are so many information outlets out there with magazines, TV shows, YouTube channels that talk about what's trending now and look at these latest design trends. And then you start searching for it and you start seeing all these images and be like, oh, now I want to input this into my space. And now I want to input that. And when we forget and we don't to take a step backwards and really understand what we like and why we like it, rather than chasing the latest, greatest fad and implementing it in big, bold patterns and aspects in our homes, we lose ourselves and we're designing for others as opposed to designing for ourselves. That's some good advice. I mean, that was also a question I had is, you know, how do people, I don't like my home, but I don't know what, you know, the direction to go. That's right there. You just nailed it. You know, Mm -hmm. design it for yourself. I mean, don't go, don't go too crazy. Right. But don't go too crazy is the fact. I mean, have you seen projects that went so far above and beyond that the house Mm -hmm. would never even sell? I've seen houses. I mean, a house can always be sold. It really depends on how you market it. Let's be honest. (laughs) Might not go for the number you want it to, but it will always invariably sell. Um, I've seen projects and I've had, unfortunately, to work on a few in a different consulting aspects where the client is, is so held up on it fitting a certain trend and this style being what her style is where all those questions that need to be asked in terms of what actually is your style? What actually do you like? What do you want your home to feel? What qualities are you looking for it to embody? How do you want that to be represented in your home? All of those questions have been forgotten. And it's all about like fitting into this glam, this, this black and white trend and bringing all these trendy aspects into their home with the brass and the gold and the black and the white pops and all of these things that are very trendy right now. And yes, you can bring trends into your home and you can do it quite successfully, but I always encourage those to be layered in, in terms of like things that can easily be rotated outwards rather than those hard finishes that are going to cost you an arm and a leg to replace later on down the road. Once you realize that's not actually what you like. So input those trends in like artwork area rugs, cabinet hardware, uh, throw pillows, things that you can switch out and you can change as your mood, as the seasons change, rather than putting them into everything that are is hard and that are like physically implemented into your home, like tiles and flooring and cabinets and really expensive lighting fixtures, because you're just going to spend so much more money switching it out later on. Right, right. Trying to keep up with now the current trend. Yes. Or when um, you realize two, three years later, you don't actually like it. Right, right. Um, so what about functionality? How much functionality should you sacrifice for aesthetics? How much functionality should you sacrifice for aesthetics? My statement would always be zero. And good design, honestly, function always takes precedence. Aesthetics is a secondary layer. Aesthetics are brought in to accentuate and to maximize the space based upon the functional needs. But if you don't, it it goes back to like, what is the problem that you're trying to solve and what's the goal of the project? If you don't nail that, it's always going to bother you. 
I have someone who's come to me for help on their office, for instance. They redid it themselves three years ago or so, and they approached it in the sense that they compiled a bunch of images, they looked at everything through Pinterest, they created this very Pinterest-worthy room and space, but they really forgot to look at how they needed that office to work and how they need to work in it and how they currently work in it, and it's missing a bunch of storage. It's missing aspects of where things need to be dropped in order for her to be more functional in that space and be more time efficient. That now it needs to be redone two to three years later because it's not meeting that need. Right, right. Well, and you said the the magic word, the the word that is uh, banned in my company, Pinterest. Uh, <laughs> nope. No, nope. no one can come to you with a Pinterest board and say do it. Absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. They better come at me with a better plan than just Pinterest. Um, and I have turned work down because they saw a picture on Pinterest and handed it to me and said, do this. I'm like, no, we're not doing that. No, um, you better have a better plan. <laughs> I mean, it can be a tool, but again, it's like what I said, there's more to oh, yeah. it than just an image, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, lighting, mm-hmm. switching gear a little bit. How would you recommend like just homeowners, not, not contractors, not I'm going to hire somebody homeowner, mm-hmm. you know, and I've, I've been told, and I don't know um, that just changing the light bulbs from the yellow to the white light will completely brighten up and change the space. Um, how does that work? How does lighting work in the interior design world on so, a lower level? On a very simple layer of light or a very simple explanation of lighting, Lighting has color temperatures. So there's two aspects you're looking for in any light bulb. The important thing to understand is that any light fixture that you have can easily be switched out to different color temperatures. The, when you're looking at a light bulb box, it's going to have a lot of information on it, but the two primary ones that you're looking for to look at as a homeowner are what its Kelvin level is and then what its amps are. So, sorry, not amps, voltage. So what you're going to be looking at is the number that's like 3,500K, that's its Kelvins, which relates to its color temperature. I personally do not encourage anybody to do anything over 3,500, 4,000 Kelvins. The higher you go over 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, you're getting into the very, very crisp blue white light, which is like hospitals. And if you've ever noticed that when you're in hospitals, you feel a little bit on edge, you're always widely awake, it's because that blue level actually interacts with your serotonin levels differently. So it's very difficult for your melatonin levels to go into production, and it never really puts you at ease. And it's done in hospitals for a reason, because nurses and doctors work night shifts. So they have to be awake for those, those aspects of time when most people would be asleep. Right. But that type of lighting is not great for your home. So shy away from anything that is above 4,000 Kelvins. And in the other aspect of it, which is that really, really orangey kind of, or like Edison light bulb, orange light, that also gives a really orange tinge to everything and it will skew your colors. And that's anything that's below 2,500. So really that sweep spot is like 2,500 to 4,000 is going to give you that really nice kind of ambient yellowy white light that's really going to brighten up and just make your space pop but with led lights one they do still know the calvins but the voltage needs to be taken into consideration because an led light bulb is going to have a different voltmeter than a standard light bulb 
and it's typically going to say like standard X voltage, LED is lower. If you want to look at what it represents in terms of normal light bulbs, you're not getting something that is like really, really overly bright because it's a way too high of a light bulb. Well, on the box, it, it does say compared to a 40 exactly. watt or whatever. Yeah. It does say compared to. Yeah, um, it'll be like a 60 volt LED compared to 100. And right. your actual light, so like your light fixture should say max 100 volts or something on it. So you want to make sure that you're making that the light bulb that you're putting into it doesn't go over that that max threshold. And and that's for, and I do know this one, that's for a the heat value for... Um, safety basically mm -hmm. and i mean yeah. an led doesn't produce as much heat but it's also just like from a light standpoint as well if it's like don't go over 100 uh, right go over right 100. that that <laughs> fixture's not designed for that much light output as well yeah. um uh we were speaking earlier and you mentioned budget how do how does one go about budgeting and, and what's a safe you know, I have a budget of X amount of dollars and I'm going to put a percentage on top of it. I mean, how does that work for a homeowner mm -hmm. versus a contractor? There are so many levels to budgets. I actually have a YouTube video that's dropping this Thursday on like the intense seven critical parts that need to be in a homeowner's budget. Um, and that goes deep into it. But as a very high level overview of it, the number that you give as a contractor is not a homeowner's budget. That is an aspect that the homeowner fills into it. And there's layers that the homeowner needs to add to it to make sure that they themselves have enough money to cover their own butt. And that includes soft costs, which are basically costs that you might've had to put up up front, which are like cost skin of the game. So it's like, did you building permit? Did you have to hire an interior designer? Um, an architect, do you need different insurance, the coverage for whenever that construction is taking place, all of those represent soft costs. And if you don't account for them, you're missing them in your budget. Another aspect that is often missed, and there's two parts to it, is taxes, because generally quotes that are given by contractors and designers and such, we add taxes to it. We don't necessarily like say, hey, it's $30,000 including tax, it, that tax gets added to it afterwards. So you always have to make sure that tax is part of your budget that you're holding as the homeowner, as well as any types of shipping and freight costs. If you as the homeowner are buying anything from online or from suppliers directly, that's not necessarily like big box tickets, like appliances and stuff like that, you need to make sure that the shipping and the freight is part of your budget. And if you don't have it included and you don't 100% know what you're purchasing it, just add 5% as kind of a coverall to be like, it's in there to bank for the fact that whatever these items are, are going to have shipping allocated. And then the, really the three last important ones are contingency fund, escalation costs, and your reserve fund. So everybody knows, put a contingency fund on it. No one really does it properly. Um, and your contingency fund is really based upon the accuracy of your numbers. So if you're at the beginning phase of a project and you yourself are pulling numbers out of thin air or you're researching things online and you haven't got quotes from reliable sources that you would actually be moving forward with, those numbers are estimates. So the more inaccurate those costs are, i.e. it's not someone who's been like, yes, to do X, Y, Z is going to cost this the higher percentage your contingency needs to be. 
which usually sits around 20 to 25. And then the more accurate you get, you can dwindle it down to 10 to 15. Never go below five or 10. Some people say five, don't do it. <laughs> like a $60,000 kitchen, 5% is $3,000. That's, that's a, not a lot of money. <laughs> that's a chunk change, yeah. You know, like if you find out that there's mold in a wall, there you go. That's $3,000 that's gone. Right. So like, right. it's heating up in that one little thing entirely. Um, escalation costs are if you are developing your um, budget a year or two before you're actually going to pull the trigger. So you're in this like thought process idea of, hmm, I wonder how much my kitchen would actually cost to do. Let's start looking at things. Then you have to add 5% per year that your budget has been developed to when you're actually going to pull the trigger because due, due to inflation. Will go up. Yep. And then the one that no one knows about, because it's unless you've built really large projects and I highly encourage people to put it in is a reserve fund. And that is a private safety fund that you hold for yourself. That is part of your overall budgeting aspect. So the money that you know that you need to come up with, but it is its separate pot of money. So you have your tracking budget, which is everything from the quotes you get in, your taxes, your shipping, your contingency, your escalation costs. That's one bucket of money. And that's what you use to like dwindle down against as project costs come in. Your reserve fund is its own little bucket off by itself. It doesn't get touched unless absolutely needed. And it is your like, oh shit fund. Like it's if something totally unprecedented, never could have thought of what happened in your project, it is there to cover your butt and to be able to pull from should you want to, rather than having to think, what do I need to scrap from this project in order to stay within my budget confinements? Right. And that's should be in life too, but as well as, uh, <laughs> as well as a project. Um, True. So I know I get a lot of people um, asking me what software I use for design and this and that and decks. You know, I, I really don't. I'm just that kind of person that I can see it in my head, draw it out, um, show people previous pictures and stuff, and it turns out perfect and they love it. Um, is there any software out there that is homeowner friendly for them to fiddle with and, you know, kind of lay out their house or their deck or whatever they're designing. Mm -hmm. Anything that you would recommend or how to find software that you would recommend? There are a few of them. It really depends. Some of them are a bit more tech savvy than others. It really depends upon what it is that you're looking for and what you're trying to do. Um, if you are more on the tech savvy and inclination side and you can figure out a program there is a free version of sketchup uh it's only online so it's like the online only version you don't actually download anything it has its limitations and sketchup is a bit more confusing in the sense that you have to build everything that you're making so like everything is like a block and a component and if you're just doing the free version then you don't get access to their model warehouse um it runs around I'd say $500 for a year subscription. So it's not the worst. If you're looking for free versions, there's a program called Homestyler and it functions relatively the same. It's pretty easy to figure out. You draw your floor plan in, it's got block components for doors and windows and they might not be exactly what you're like design looking for, but you can input it in. 
Um, and then it also has a block of furniture and accessories and things that you can plug in as you need so that you can kind of get a sense of it. There are limitations to it in that some of the blocks and items you can't adjust proportionally if you're looking for something that's a different size, but it's probably the best one from a free standpoint that if you're really just looking to kind of lay out a room and like see what's possible, it's probably the best if you're not great at sketching. All right. Um, and then let, let's go to one thing, one item, when to hire a pro and when not to hire a pro. Ooh, we might have different I mean there, there's a lot of them I know there's a lot of them but what what area what I don't know electrical plumbing uh, painting painting a skylight or a, a vaulted ceiling I mean what what would be your major no no don't and your major go ahead and try it so okay I am one of those people who looks at it two ways one what's your comfort level and two what's your skill set if you're someone who's like, oh, I should DIY because everybody's DIY these days, but you don't really have like any type of bone in your body that's like, this is a great idea and I'm savvy in figuring things out, don't do it. It's going to cost you more in the long run. You're going to mess it up. It's going to cost someone more to be able to come in and fix it. And it's also going to take you longer. And one of the things that a lot of people forget to think about in DIY is that it does have that extra layer of time to it. And time is money. It is your time. What are you giving up to then take on this project in evenings or on weekends? What are you sacrificing for to do this project DIY-wise that you could be doing other things, spending time with your family, um, going on vacation, whatever it might be. So what are you sacrificing? And then what is your hourly rate? Because that sometimes when you look at it is like, hmm, maybe it's not quite as cost effective to do DIY when it's going to take me longer. I personally don't touch electrical and plumbing. It's not my realm of comfort. I will do baseboards. I will do casings. I will. I love painting. But if we're talking about painting a massive vaulted ceiling, what type of equipment do I need to rent or buy to make that possible? I'm going to need scaffolding. Do I have access to that? How much is that going to cost? So again, it's like time versus what it is that I need to bring in to make that work. Good answer. Um, <laughs> that's a great answer, actually. Um, so all, not all of our viewers are older folks. We have a lot of uh, younger uh, listeners. Mm -hmm. What would you offer those individuals that are very DIY savvy or those who think they are um, that kind of have an interest in pursuing an interior design career? Do you should they tear their house apart many, many times <laughs> over? Um is, is there a school to go to? How, how to become, how do people become you? Let's put it that way. So it really depends what you're wanting to do. I do have a free challenge coming up called house to home. If you're doing your own project and you're just wanting to be your own designer and really figure out what it is that you want that space to do and work for you and to build something that is realistically going to work beyond just a compilation of images then that challenge is for you. It's three weeks. I teach you everything in terms of how to actually look at a project, set it all up and go through the process that needs to be figured out so that you walk away with a design package that you can work with. Um, if you are someone who wants to take on design as more of a career thought process where you're wanting 
to help others and to get into people's homes, I would first look at what it is that you like about design and what it is that you're wanting to do with it. Because there's a big misunderstanding in the design world. There are interior decorators and there are interior designers. Interior decorators is a far less intensive training program. It's usually nine months to a year, not a huge amount of money. You can do it at local community colleges. And there you learn the fundamentals of design. So you'll learn all the different like principles and elements. You'll learn how to layer things. You'll learn about materials and products, but more so from you coming in and recommending furniture recommending some change in a paint color or a drapery. You're not coming into someone's space and saying, this is how we're going to lay out your room. This is how we're going to do your kitchen. I'm going to recommend we're going to put electrical and plumbing. These are walls that we're going to tear down. We're going to look at how we're going to functionally blow up your space, make it work for you. That is space planning. And there are code, there's liabilities, there's understanding how people work and function in spaces and ergonomics, that is interior design. And interior design should really be more labeled interior architecture because then it kind of goes, oh, okay, I get what you do. But that that is more that side. There's more design aesthetics is, is interior decorating. All right. Sounds good. Now, so how can folks get a hold of you? Um, I will put all your links in the show notes, mm-hmm. but give them a little uh, blip it. So reaching out to me easiest would be through Instagram, sending me a DM or on email. You can find me on Instagram at gabriellamilgram.co. Email would be gabriella at gabriellamilgram.co. And if you want to check out any of my YouTube videos where I deep dive into both the design as well as the management tactics that you need to know for home renovations, it is Gabriella Home Building and Design Expert or at Gabriella Milgram Co. And I just plugged in your name um, on Google here, and you're the first one that popped up. So it doesn't seem like you're too hard to find. (laughs) (laughs) My name is a a unique one. (laughs) It is. (laughs) It it is, yes. Well, thank you for your time here uh, on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been such a blast. Thank you so much, Eugene. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's all the time we have for today's episode. We hope you found our tips and advice helpful for maintaining and repairing your home. Remember, taking care of your home is an ongoing process, so make sure to stay proactive and address any issues as soon as they arise. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, please reach out to us on our website or social media channels. The links will be in the description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here at Before It Breaks.